everyone. Welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt Healthcare Attorney Matthew Roberts. And Matthew, uh, we started this podcast because of COVID, and we've learned a lot over the past few months. One of the things we're seeing is the pandemic is pointing out disparities in healthcare. What are you seeing? There's no doubt about that. I think we're seeing a greater impact in communities where there are a lot of minorities and in rural and lower income communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of a double uh, whammy, so to speak. We have this tough, very tough global pandemic in markets that don't, all, that don't always have access, easy access to healthcare. So we've definitely seen a, a bigger impact in these communities where um, we hope we can get more help to them. Right. Well, we're going to talk about that today. I'm excited being from a dirt road in Kansas to talk about rural America. We're going to be joined in just a minute with Peter Levenis. He is CEO of Community Integrated Management Services, or SIMS. Mr. Levenis is a healthcare administrator with 40 years of experience in for-profit and non-profit hospitals, clinics, and practices in both government and private settings. We will discuss community health centers, how they help people across South Carolina, and what SIMS is doing to adjust their services during the COVID-19 pandemic. So stay with us, we'll be right back. Welcome back everybody to Taking the Pulse. In the studio today with us is Mr. Peter Levenis. He is the CEO of Community Integrated Management Services, or SIMS, which is an independent practice association made up of 14 federally qualified clinics, or FQHCs, that provide patient-centered primary, dental, and behavioral health to more than 350,000 South Carolinians in 40 of 41 counties in our state. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Yes. Um, SIMS makes it possible for just a, a huge number of South Carolinians to get the health care that they might not otherwise get. Can you explain to our listening and viewing audience really how you work with those community health centers? Sure. We have uh, 14 of the uh, 20 community health centers that are in here in South Carolina, federally qualified health centers. Um, who formed this partnership in 2008. It was at that time there were 17 community health centers. Um, that's when uh, Governor Samford made the decision that Medicaid was gonna be moved to managed care and set that up as a model, you know, and uh, DHHS would serve sort of like a, um, the overseer of health plans. Uh, when that occurred, um, the, the whole matrix for the way we operated and the, the way we were measured and our performances and things like that changed. Um, and as we viewed the, the changes, we were inundated by somewhere around 22 different Medicaid uh, health plans that wanted to do business in South Carolina because the governor did not put a limit on the number of plans that would come in. Georgia, for example, limited the number of plans to three. They had an RFP, a request you know, for proposals, and they made selections. I kind of think it was a good decision because I'm kind of a free market person, and most of us were, and we thought that the stronger plans would eventually uh, went out. But initially, it was enormously cumbersome because that's a lot of people that were going to community health centers to contract with them for the Medicaid line of business. And at that time, it was limited to the Medicaid line of business. 
um, when we got together, most of the plan, most of the centers were asking for assistance. But as a membership association, at the time I was working with the South Carolina Primary Healthcare Association, which is an awesome association, um, we were limited to what we could do in the negotiating process on behalf of the centers, the community health centers, and health plans to uh, what they call a messenger model review of the contract. So you had to stop short of engaging in any discussions about finances, about payment, uh, reimbursements. Um, that was a problem for them because most of the community health centers spent all of their days taking care of patients and solving problems that ranged anywhere from getting a well put into someone's to a neighborhood's yard so they could have potable water uh, to finding places for people to live, uh, shelter if they were patients who came in. And, and trying to negotiate health plans at a higher level was a challenge. So um, I, we were meeting one day and, and they all turned and said, well, what options do we have? And I said, well, you know, we used to form on the health, on the, profe the, the uh, for-profit side, we form independent practice associations. And then we could, uh, we could leverage our positions and at least enjoy the economies of scale. And they said, well, who do we need to go to? I said, I'm not sure, but I talked to one of my many cousins here who were our attorneys. And, uh, and I said, who's the best at that? And I got Matthew Roberts's name. That does not surprise me. So we call Matthew and Matthew and um, Tim Hewitt Houston came in and uh, we discussed what we wanted to do. Um, just the framework and then next and improve it was uh, has been one of our closest partners in this process since we organized officially in january of 2008 took us about six months eight months to formulate the uh, proposal and and everything else in the plan and we've been operating together since then now what that did for the community health centers it shifted the discussion from volume-based practices, meaning you see every person who graces your door, schedule every patient who calls into the office for an appointment that we can possibly see, regardless, and for community health centers, that it was always regardless of their ability to pay. So no one was 100% sure that we were reaching the patients who had the greatest needs. We knew that we were maximizing our appointment schedules. We knew that our providers were exhausted at the end of each day and our staff, but were we really making a difference in the health outcomes of the patients? So as we started the discussions with the health plans, we decided that we wanted to get to a point where we were providing a value-based product service to the community and because we were doing that we want to be able to retain the best providers we could and South Carolina was more of a donor provider state meaning we trained a lot of providers a lot of physicians came in and went to med school or came here for their residency programs and left the state when they finished so we were not retaining as many we were exporting them and that's not a good thing. 
So we wanted to be able to keep them down. We also found that one of the biggest problems our physicians were having, because we didn't have enough physicians, we still don't have, no one has enough physicians to meet the healthcare needs of the population here in South Carolina. We all do the best we can, but we wanted to keep more physicians and we knew that the biggest problem physicians have that required transition in their positions was their ability to balance a professional life, quality professional life with a family life, because most of the physicians who come out of residencies, you know, are in their late 20s, early to mid 30s. And if 60% of the physicians were females, they're also in their childbearing years, they would like to start families if they could and spend a little bit of time with their children. And they were also saddled with enormous loan reimbursement payments. So we decided to leverage our position with the health plans to, um, to be compensated more appropriately for the value-based healthcare that we deliver. And we wanted to be incentivized for that. And we wanted to use that incentive money to incentivize the physicians and the clinical staff that provides direct support to them so they could they can make loan reimbursement payments at a little more escalated rate so that their kids aren't about ready to go to college and dad and mom are sitting there saying, oh my goodness, we're gonna take care of your college. I still haven't paid off my student loans right, yet. Right, right, right. So that's what we did. Now the, the most positive benefit from all of this is we did negotiate those value-based reimbursements with the health plans. Uh, it was new to everybody. They didn't have to do that before. They had some hospital plans that were based like that. But we wanted it based on the things that were most important to the, and, and accommodated the needs of the patients. And we wanted to be able to be measured against all other providers in the state, everybody. Because as primary care providers, we had 18% of the Medicaid business or more, and we only had 5.5% of the enrolled Medicaid providers. So from a business perspective, those numbers don't right. work well but the volume of business was absolutely necessary and uh, and we all had to get smart every provider had to learn about uh HEDIS measures um and that and those measures those are standardized measures they're actually 90 plus measures uh that are used uh by the uh national committee for quality um uh, assurance and those are the certification measures that are used to, to actually judge or value, evaluate health plans, hospitals, us, uh, all providers out there. Most providers though, just do the best they can because no one's got the time to devote to that. We actually devoted time and we spent years working with our providers uh, making sure they were well aware of what HEDIS measures are. The state uses 12 on the Medicaid line of business that they felt were very important. Four of those are diabetic measures, four of them are women's health measures, and four of them are pediatric and infant measures. Uh, smart to do, uh, provide that kind of focus on it. Um, and then we see how we all do, and are, is it moving the needle? You, you've heard in some of your discussions uh, the other podcasts uh, comments about social determinants for care, and there are many. 
Um, there are a lot from what we've learned over the years is there are a lot of things that our patients can do for themselves that they actually have the responsibility for. And for those patients who have some barriers, could perhaps language, you know, we, we used to say, well, some people are more uh, healthcare literate, but then every time my wife or I get a, I, an EOB comes into the house from an insurance plan, <laughs> I'm sitting there having to study this thing and I work in the industry right, to see right. what it's telling me. Uh, but the people who actually help, and, and it'll come up in a telehealth question, help uh, patients with um, accessing care aren't always as informed and aren't as aware of the needs of their grandmother, grandfather, mother or father or brother or sister, uh, their healthcare needs. So we decided we need to spend more time getting to know the, whoever the registered caregivers are, identified caregivers, not just the patient, right. but if we, and my mother is a good example. My mother is 94. Is she gonna approve of you talking about her on this <laughs> she podcast? She loves <laughs> the doctors, but she is very guarded about what she shares with her doctor. Okay, yes. Because that generation was just naturally like that. And if I'm not there or my sister's not there, the doctor's only gonna get half the story. Right. And my mother is never going to remember what medication she should take or what other um, requirements the doctor has imposed on her for her own health and welfare. So for us now over the years, we've done very well meeting our HEDIS goals and objectives for the benefit of our patients. I actually showed you Yes, one. I was gonna say you brought one today. It's great news. And it's not anything that I do or that our CEOs of our centers do. In healthcare, it doesn't matter how good I am, how good the administrative team at Baptist or uh, Prisma now, all the hospitals here in Columbia are, because no matter how good we are, we don't generate one improved outcome for a patient, nor do we generate a dollar's worth of revenue. None happens until a doctor touches a patient. And if that's an absolute here in the healthcare industry, then everybody should be spending more time trying to support the physicians with as much as they need so that they can enjoy the same kind of quality of life that we all want to enjoy while they spend as much of their time as they can touching patients because the one thing you learn when you've been in business long enough and, you, and you're a provider-focused administrator is the doctor's day doesn't end at five, six, seven, or eight. And Matthew can attest to this because his wife is a physician. His wife will probably wake up sometime during the evening with one of those eureka moments. Mm -hmm. The patient I saw at 8.45 this morning, I, it dawned on me now yes. what I can do to help them. Yeah. So they never get away from it. Yes. Peter, 
SIMS has been such a uh, success and a national model for other FQHCs uh, across the country. Um, talk a little bit about the clinical integration and financial integration and how being structured that way allows you to do what you've been talking about where the physicians can have more time with patients and you can document the, the increased quality that you created. Well, Matthew and company were very instrumental in reminding us about our clinical and financial integration and what we've done and we made the decision early on that regardless of the size of the center because we've got centers that are varying sizes. Some are very large, uh, some have uh, 12, 14 satellite centers including one very large central location. Uh, some are a little smaller but they still have uh, four to six sites in addition to their main site. But the number of patients varied as well. Uh, their staffing levels vary. Some have over 500 staff, some have fewer than 100. Um, the number of providers vary as well. What we decided early on was we were not going to leave anyone behind. We were not going to identify any one center as more important than another because they aren't when it comes to the delivery of care to each individual patient. So we said, okay, this is going to be an equally owned partnership. It's a limited liability company that was formed. And um, regardless of your size, it's one vote per. So we have 14 centers now, a couple have consolidated. Um, and, um, and actually it works very well. Now, in addition to that, we earn our incentives. And, and I guess we'll take a few minutes to talk about incentives, but the, the bulk of the discussion, you know, we want it to be about the quality of care that's delivered. But, uh, but we base the incentive earnings with the contracts we've written to health plans and to insurance companies um, to be measured on the aggregated performance of all 14, our total population. And that way, no one center is going to be uh, the beneficiary of all the good because they might have more resources. It motivated, we thought, it would motivate people, uh, you know, in our network to share more in best practices. We all talk about that in healthcare. Yeah, you know, we, we share best practice because we want everybody, don't, people shouldn't have to learn things that are on their own when someone else is doing it. I think the work that Kathy Schwarting and, and the Palmetto Cares does is, is, she's not on a model with health plans, but that's how they work. They right. share best practices and that's wonderful. Um, I, I love this and what it did though is it caused us to realize early on we not only needed to share the best practices, we needed to share the resources because not all the centers had uh, population health you know, directors, they, they did, all didn't have um, you know, the uh, billing collection staff at the level with revenue cycle managers and some of these other specialties that you get into in the administrative, administrative side of the house that do help make a difference. And over the years, that has been one of the most significant issues. So we not only share how we take care of patients, what our protocols and standing orders are, so people don't have to reinvent the wheel. Okay. Uh, they can just take it to another level, which cool. is exactly what they have done. Mm -hmm. and, and we share those and we actually have, we used to have face-to-face -face meetings, now we've been doing more Zoom meetings um, every month uh, with all of our quality staff and all of our care management, care coordination staff and the health plans, uh, you know, and then all of our physicians and our administrative teams. And that's what the discussions are. It's no longer, 
well, can you tell me what you're doing here? It's how'd you address the issue of emergency room utilization? How many, uh, what's your top 10 users there? And it's amazing to me how uh, now we're not talking about the CEOs or the CFOs or the COOs, all those C-suite folks. You expect them to know it, but they get that information from someone else, someone else in the organization. Those are the people who are on these calls. And I, I suppose that the collaboration continues as we've been through the pandemic, that the community health centers are able to talk and share how they've coped and served and, and really navigated a changing situation. We have, it's been a big help too. Um, we've done more at the request of DHEC to uh, provide uh, staff to support the testing sites you've seen. We've all bought more tents than I ever thought I'd see <laughs> since I left the Army because we have our parking lots now in order to preserve the, um, you know, the integrity of our patient exam rooms and waiting rooms until after we've checked patients. But because we set the tents out to do that, then we have so many random patients who come by want, wanting to be tested. So we don't turn anyone away, we test everyone, then uh, DHECT has asked us to go out. And I think these test sites, the test programs where we go to schools and uh, large parking areas, and you know, it, it's a very integrated effort with police or guard or reserves or others, but we, we actually provide staff for that in all of these counties we operate in. It's been very good, that, and we've learned some things, and we've shared among ourselves what works, what doesn't, when, how we use telehealth. You know, telehealth has a lot of components. Yeah. One is the full value of telehealth, and you heard from the Medical Association that one of the, one of the big problems we had early on for a, a more broad utilization of telehealth is it, it costs too much in terms of resources when there was little or no reimbursement to a practice. Yes. But I think we're going to get through that with this, but what we were able to do with our tablets is where, where I mentioned we have the tents outside and we've got staff out there. We actually have a mini telehealth system set up that way point to point so yes. that we can check who's positive, who's not. If somebody we has a, a need that aren't demonstrating the symptoms, we're able to shuffle those in. Early in this, when we did that and people tested positive, we had to close down clinics because we had to self-isolate, we had to clean, we had to do that. And that was very problematic. Plus it, it sends uh, an alarming signal to the rest of the patients about going into their doctor's right. office. And we never closed our offices. We only, in only one center did we, were we forced to furlough anyone, and that was just a few of the administrative staff because they were so inundated with positives and staff families who were positive, and we just didn't have the ability. But, but everyone else has been fully employed, albeit 30% of the force has been working from home for a long time, and we've actually had travel bans on. So we have had no meetings here like we normally do, bringing our physicians in so that we can orient and train them to these HEDIS measures yes. so it's not foreign to them. One thing about our physicians and our clinical staff, physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs, um, our dentists and our PharmDs, they are, and, and our behavioral health specialists, they are very competitive. 
once they understand that there's a standard out there and there is a standard that has measures that identifies levels of performance, they want to know what the qualifying requirements are and they're going to make that happen. That's wonderful. And the nice part about that, it sounds like an administrative drill, but it's not. You hear and you've heard for the last eight years, 10 years, huddles that go on in doctor's right. offices. Well, ask to sit in on a huddle. I do when I go around to the centers and then it's always, well, sir, we're, we're really busy. Uh, we, we're going to skip the huddle now, but when you come back the next time, we'll do the huddle. And I usually say, well, I can spend the night. I'm okay here. <laughs> and uh, I'll be here for the afternoon. But now those huddles are provider driven. Once they're provider driven, now the, now the needs of the patient are paramount. It's not a business thing. Healthcare was never really intended, I think, to be a business. It was always an art form and a service. Peter, one final question. Your, your, your folks in the centers have been so instrumental, particularly in the rural areas, of uh, being a, a, a safety net for, for folks during the COVID pandemic. How are the clinicians, the nurses, the physicians, the staff, how are they holding up now we're six months into this? Uh, it's almost unfair to say that some are not weary, tired, because one of the challenges that they have that I, some of the churches here in the Columbia area are trying to address. And, and I've got a daughter who's a family medicine physician here in Columbia, and she also has three children that are uh, third grade, first grade preschool. These physicians, and her husband happens to be an occupational therapist at Baptist, but um, so they're, they're all on this front line, but they've got kids that need to go to school. And, and, and it's enormously challenging for them to do that and need to take a little bit of time to be with them so they could get started off okay on their tablets and things. So I think they're, they're experiencing every single um, hardship that their patients have that they carry. as well as the hardships that they carry for their families. Uh, yet they, to their credit, they find a way to get in. Now, what can we do? We help as much as we can by offering flex schedules and things so that we can accommodate needs because if in Tori's case, if she were employed with us, if she had to be there and her husband was employed with us as well and he had to be there, that puts a stress on both of them with their families so we work a flex schedule so they can, one of them can be wherever they need to be. Uh, I, I think that's a, a very critical component for the support staff, the administrative leadership uh, for any kind of an organization, whether it's a hospital, a network like ours, a practice, private practice, like you had uh, Jerry, um, you know, on from his Tidelands practice, you know, he's doing a lot of things, and even with the American College as president-elect, and he's still running a practice out there. Uh, Ada's doing the same thing, and, uh, and they're still running practices. And by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. Here we have one family medicine, uh, federally qualified community health center physician 
who's the president-elect of the American College of Family Medicine. We have Jerry, president-elect of the you know, family medicine physician, who's also president-elect of, uh, of um, the, uh, the American Academy of Physicians, uh, Association of Physicians. We also have Latham Woodard, who's the CEO of our membership organization, which is the South Carolina Primary Healthcare Association, who is the first primary care um, association um, member, meaning not an FQAC CEO or staff member, to serve as the chairman of the National Association of Community Health Centers. That organization has 2,800 community health centers around the state, the country, and um, and Lathrop is the chairman of that, and that's that's awesome. So South Carolina, our small state, has those three key people that are going to be leading different elements of the healthcare industry, especially on the primary care side of the house. Uh, by the way, I want to mention this about primary care. We are a primary care network of practices. And our centers have family medicine physicians, pediatricians, internists, OBGYN physicians. We have behavioral health specialists. We have dentists. We have PharmDs. And in some cases, we actually have special specialists who are working with us uh, because where we might have problems getting our patients in to see specialists, we always try to find a way around it. It's one thing in healthcare. There's no problem we all can't solve in healthcare if we put our heads together. You know what, and I think together is the key word. What I've learned from speaking with you today is that you helped bring many together to be under one umbrella, to work stronger together, that they're doing that, that you're seeing that, the evidence you brought today and just hearing your stories. Um, and there's really, it sounds like, no limit to what you could become by working together for the good of delivering services, right, from the heart, not um, intellectually. So, uh, Mr. Levenis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's encouraging to hear the good news. It is. It you is. know, and Sims is one of the good stories that's been around pre-COVID, but that has continued to be a good story during COVID. And it's it's leadership. That, that Peter's demonstrated, it's innovation, it's collaboration. And that's the key to working our way out of this. Yes, collaboration for sure, being there for each other. I, I need to mention one more thing. And I, I think most physicians have done this in the primary care arena. The primary care physicians have not been, they've been underutilized during this whole COVID pandemic. I think because people thought it was gonna be a short-lived experience. But no one knows you better than your primary care physician. There is no better uh, gatekeeper for your care than your primary care physician. And I'm not advocating now for our centers. I'm advocating on behalf of all primary care physicians and physicians in general. Um, someone needs to be an honest broker in that because when you have the ability to go see any specialist you want, anytime you want to see them. Uh, oftentimes, everybody does what they think's best for you, but as my mother is somewhat hesitant to offer all of the information, sometimes you're symptomatically treated and your the holistic care gets missing. 
the gatekeeper picks up on that to make sure that you're not on meds that are contraindicated for one another and others. During this process, when things, when patients were afraid to come in to see their primary care doctors or any of their doctors, because they were scared to go to the hospital, I actually had to have a surgical procedure done during the, this thing. And that was not something I was looking forward to. And I had it done at Baptist. Uh, once I got into pre-op, I was comfortable. Between the parking garage and pre-op, I was not comfortable. Uh, but I, I did have a good health outcome in spite of that. Now, for us, what I took out of that, because that was very early in this deal, is we need to make sure we're, let's not wait. We know that the patients who are most vulnerable, regardless of their age, are any patient with a comorbidity. And for kids, it's obesity. Could be anything we started using our staff to call. First, we had to research every one of the patients in our electronic health record uh, for co comorbidities. And then we started calling them because hospitals were seeing a lot of patients when they got to the emergency rooms, but they were not providing the feedback to the primary, primary care provider. So you didn't know whether any of your patients were in or not. So the follow-up care was important or any follow-up. Right. Right. That helped us in a way that I didn't really realize in that patients felt comfortable, then we started getting tablets to them and cell phones to them. And we do have a problem with broadband in a lot of the areas, but, but that's something that I think Kathy and the group are working on and our legislators are working on too. But, um, but my goodness, we were able to talk to patients at least and let them see our doctors on their little cell phone and right. FaceTime right. as long as you don't talk about any confidential information. And that in itself has been a, um, a real blessing because now our schedules are full through the end of the year with patients who know they need to come in. Our concern was they weren't getting their meds, they weren't getting their diabetic medications, right. they weren't getting those scripts filled. And, um, and we've used our uh, community health workers and our staff, our you know, clinical staff that go out and do home visits to get those meds to them and, and meet those needs. So those are, and, and we're not the only ones doing that. Family medicine practices all around the state are doing that. The um, best in people seems to have, you know, really risen to the top through all of this. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that really we've started this podcast so we can highlight absolutely. what I would not have known right. Dr. Rogers or your organization or right. much of this, really, Matthew. It's and important to get this out at this time. I think so. Very important. It is. Um, well, uh, with that, we are going to close this edition of Taking the Pulse. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We will continue this conversation, all things COVID, over the next course of several weeks, probably months. I hate to say it, but we thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.